welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi Namaste and greetings I Mahima Kapoor researcher at Impri Impact and Policy Research Institute Prabhav Evam Niti Anusandhan Sansthan Nai Delhi extend a warm welcome to you all to the Impri hashtag web policy talk today we have gathered for a talk on cohesive development in the anthropocene as part of the series the state of development discourses hashtag cohesive development this discussion is being organized by the impri center for human dignity and development and delivered by dr anshay linkenback i feel privileged to introduce the moderator for the session professor sunil ray sir is the former director at an sinha institute of social studies patna and an advisor at sedex and impri prior to that he was a visiting fellow at the institute of development studies sussex and institute of oriental studies russia He was awarded senior fellowship by government of Germany at Max Weber Stiftung to work on alternative development paradigm. He was part of the review mission of the European Commission and has worked on several consulting assignments with the World Bank and other international organizations. His papers have been published extensively in reputed national and international journals and has authored several books. including industrial growth and protection in india natural resources organization and technology linkages management of natural resources institutions for sustainable livelihood and theorizing cohesive development and alternative paradigm welcome sir i am honored to introduce the speaker dr anshay linkenback ma'am is a long term fellow at the max weber center for advanced cultural and social studies university of edinburgh germany and at the ms marian artegor international center of advanced studies in the humanities and social sciences metamorphosis of the political in delhi india she held teaching and research positions in germany switzerland and new zealand her expertise includes anthropological and sociological theory anthropology of development and environment social movements justice and inequality human rights indigenous rights we welcome you ma'am now i invite professor ray to take the proceedings further and we look forward to an enriching deliberation thank you uh, <clears throat> thank you mahima thank you so much for for your nice words <clears throat> uh uh i have reasons to feel very uh privileged uh i feel honored to uh to have been given the opportunity uh by impri uh to moderate to the discussion uh the presentation to be made by professor lincoln park uh the topic that she has chosen is something which is very relevant today and is going to be relevant further tomorrow and without which it's too difficult for one 
really, as I understand, talk about development, talk about growth, talk about growth economic change or transformation. That's going to be the basic uh, understanding that one has to be very, very clear about and to go ahead for talking out what kind of development that one is looking forward. Professor Linkenberg, as I know her personally, is one of the finest scholars that I have come across in my career. And the first time which when I heard her, when I was with the AMC institution and uh, she was there speaking on Mahatma Gandhi. It was, it's very, I do remember, it was impossible for many people to think. It's the German scholar, how is he speaking on Mahatma Gandhi? What a depth, the deeper understanding that she had on Mahatma Gandhi's philosophy, on Mahatma Gandhi's idea, and at the same time, his his, his, his Mahatma Gandhi's uh, fundamental uh, understanding about the environment is something which is very important for today. Honestly speaking, Professor Linkenberg, when I heard you on environmental aspect, I went to the library next day, searched for certain books on Mahatma Gandhi, which I never talked to you about, and started looking forward the relevant part of environment of Mahatma Gandhi's. And then I read it very carefully. And so it so happened that after a few months, I think, I was invited by the government to Bihar because they were organizing some seminar on environment. I was invited by the government of Bihar to speak on environment and Mahatma Gandhi. There's a celebration of Mahatma Gandhi's, you know, 100 years. So, uh, so that really it helped me a lot to organize my thought, to learn first of all from the whole understanding of Mahatma Gandhi on environment, society, and development. And uh, you trigger out that tremendous interest in that one to learn more about it. And then I went through the literature and I could really speak about and Bandana Shiva, I do not know whether you know about her, she was there with me and then she came and told me that how much deeper understanding that you had on Mahatma Gandhi's environment. I said, there is Professor Linkenberg who really initiated this process in my intellectual understanding and therefore I have been able to get quite of exposure to that idea. Anyway, that's it besides the point. The point over here is a topic that she has chosen. Uh, uh, that's something, uh, you know, cohesive development in uh, in cook, uh, a cohesive development in the Anthropocene. Uh, I, I don't want to speak too much on that as she's going to speak, but before that, I let me tell you that something, uh, the cohesive development that we have been talking about, in fact, we've got a book also being published and Professor Linkenberg has a fantastic, very, very searching contribution in that volume, very fundamental something which sometimes I did feel while going through that, if you do not go through such literature, such exposition, it is too difficult for you to conceive as to how one can as researcher link oneself to the milieu, to the people, to the people who are deprived. 
is something which is extraordinarily important for any development to talk about. And she really worked very hard on the theoretical premise based on her greater exposure to the tribal uh, uh, lives of the people in India, especially. And then she systematically argued as to how really one should connect oneself to the tribal life. And therefore, the question of environment, question of sustainability, question of development, cohesion is a cohesiveness. And that's why she conceived cohesiveness in a different way altogether, which is a part of the whole understanding of all of us. Now, cohesive understanding here, as I understand, and she's going to speak more just to, as, to briefly to explain the cohesiveness between individual, the humanity and society, the society and the nature. Actually, this is, a, we need to view the biosphere. We need to view the biosphere not as a separate, society is not separate from it. Society is a part of the biosphere. Let's begin this one argument. Let's try to understand that society, it was never been taught in the universities earlier. For last few decades, when the climate change has been taking place, harming people, people have been waking up, talking about it and all that. But fundamentally, there are of course scholars, right from the days of Marx, even today, you see have been talking about this one and this is becoming too much on that. But basically it's nothing but the society is not independent of the biosphere. It's an inseparable part of the biosphere. Look at the whole thing. We have what's called in the, some estimate, I was going through some literature uh, and I found very interesting estimate, which many of you may be knowing about that. In the, in the, in the universe, there is an estimate called, the estimate shows that one to four trillion, one to four trillion galaxies up there. One to four trillion galaxy. And in our galaxy, there is 100 to 400 billion suns. In our galaxy, 100 to 400 billion suns. Uh, billion stars, sorry, billion stars. Sun is one of those billion, four billion stars, one to four billion stars. And then sun, now that there are eight planets orbiting the sun, Earth is one of those planets. It is in this Earth, you have the biosphere, the layer of which is thick, as thick as 20 kilometers. It is this place, it is the, within these 20 kilometers, this biosphere where the human life exists. Now it is problematic now, it is this when we started talking about inseparability. Earlier we never thought, we exploit it, we use it for our material progress as much as you can. Because we never thought we are separate from each other. And then is boomerang against our interest, is going against ours. Question is that who is to be blamed? The human action. How the human action is being shaped? A system. Which system that you have? System of production, system of consumption, system of distribution, system of investment, and all that. What is that system? See whether it's going to talk about this in a briefly. I'm talking about my understanding. System is basically the system that you have adopted is a capital system. 
where you are nurturing individualism, right from the liberal democracy of the Britain or the UK in the 19th, 18th century. We have been following the same individualism. We call liberal democracy. So individual nurture the interest of the individual, make profit as much as you can and grow. That is the kind of trajectory of change that we have adopted, we have been following. And because all these things, logical change or logic that we find, reasoning that we find, are rooted in the whole issue of whether we are separable from the biosphere. Because we thought that we are, not, we are separated, but actually it is not. Complete distortion of the fact, of the science, denying the science by the system for a specific interest is nothing but use the resources to the extent possible for your own personal benefit. That is what has been the story. Now it is here, Professor Lincoln, as I presume, is going to pitch in and saying that, that there is a cohesion between the human individuals or society and the nature. So this is precisely with the logic she may be developed or dwell upon and maybe it will be greatly in what is called enlightening for every one of us to know more and all that. And before that, she says, she starts, I have a few words to share. Impri, Dr. Director, Dr. Ujjit Kumar and his colleagues, they have opened this forum in this institute uh, to invite a discussion uh, any discussion which is something primarily different from the kind of discussions uh, uh, that take place in a very repeated manner is very different. This forum is basically to invite a new idea, new understanding, new interpretations and and see this impre has been nurturing this one and this is the perhaps the ninth or tenth presentations that is going to be made uh, before that several scholars from different countries from various countries of the world and India also uh, they presented their views understanding which are extremely fascinating in varieties intellectually stimulating I'm sure uh, the uh, uh, this forum is going to get richly benefited by the contribution by Professor Lincoln Bach is something which is very close to our heart, cohesive development in the Anthropocene. With these few words, uh, may I request Professor Lincoln Bard to, uh, to speak on what she wants to speak. Thank you so much, Professor Lincoln Bard. Thank you, Professor Rai, for these very kind words and uh, First of all, I want to thank uh, the organizers, Professor Kumar, to invite me to that speech. And also thank you, um, Professor Ray, again for uh, being a commentator. I start, uh, as a starting point for this lecture, I take the book, Theorizing Cohesive Development, an alternative paradigm edited by Professor Ray and Nitu Chaudhary and Rajiv Kumar. 
a book which is for the which for the first time systematically and from an interdisciplinary background reflects on the concept of cohesive development. In the introduction to the book, the editors challenge the mainstream development paradigm, which they see as subordinated to the logic of capital and thus based on methodological individualism and the continuous expansion of surplus value generation or economic growth. They highlight not only the resulting increase of global and national inequalities, the accumulation of wealth in the hands of a few, but also emphasize the growing metabolic rift in the relation between humans and nature. They argue for cohesive development as a new alternative paradigm founded on the principles of mutual altruism and solidarity, allowing for integration between humans and between humans and nature. The new paradigm envisions human progress as a dialectic process based on co-evolution between humans and nature. Cohesive development as alternative paradigm, therefore, calls strongly for new human world relationships. However, when it comes to reflections on the forms of transformation that are needed to bring out cohesiveness in its different dimensions, so far, the focus is laid on the social world. There is broad consensus, what forms sociality, the, uh, sociality we need, how economics, how the politics should like, look like. Yet what cohesiveness means regarding our relations to nature remains underexplored and underdefined, as well as the concept of co-evolution, ranging so prominently in the definitions of cohesive development. I am going to take up this challenge and in this paper, I invite you to join me in reflections on possible ways of reconceptualizing human nature relationships from a socio-anthropological perspective. However, before I start, I want to explain why I think that we really need to revisit our perspective on human nature interaction. While already nearly 50 years ago, the Meadows Report commissioned by the Club of Rome has indicated that under the then existing global conditions of economic growth and depletion of natural resources, the world will reach its limits. Recent studies have painted an even more bleak picture of the world's future. My first subchapter is the challenges of the Anthropocene. The human footprint, a quantitative Quantitative measure of how much, much humans are using the Earth's natural resources shows that the human species has already exceeded the total biocapacity of the planet. Earth system scientists have developed a planetary boundaries approach, which I quote, aims to define a safe operating space for human societies to develop and thrive. The framework identifies nine processes which are integral to earth system functioning, but are already substantially modified by human action. And these processes are in need of strict control to counter the risk of destabilization of the earth system. And to name some of them, it's climate change, stratospheric ozone depletion, ocean acidification, biogeochemical flows due to phosphorus and nitrogen, 
Land system change with main focus on conversion of forest is directly impacting climate, freshwater use and atmospheric aerosol loading. Scientific data and accumulated scientific knowledge have provided ample evidence that the human species has not only profoundly altered the earth over the centuries, but that Anthropos is also the principal agent of the current predicament of global environmental and climate change. To acknowledge the accumulated human impact, geologists have suggested to describe the most recent period of Earth's history as Anthropocene, a term which was introduced by chemist Paul Crutzen and biologist Eugene Sturmer and has revived so far broad resonance in academic and public discourse. The naming of the new era is not undisputed. Scholars have criticized that the term Anthropocene claims that Anthropos, the species, or humankind as a whole, is responsible for the large-scale modification of the Earth system. While in reality, only a particular kind of human being could be blamed. The destructive Anthropos is the quote, quintessential European and then Western rational subject, tells us Enger, an individualist and exceptionalist figuration. And Dipesh Chakrabarti explicitly asks, uh, asks whether the poor of the world whose carbon footprint is very low, can be held responsible for the genesis of the Anthropocene. Uneasiness with a focus on species responsibility has also encouraged scholars to seek alternative names for the current epoch. For example, Capitalocene or Stuluktocene, down Donna Haraway and Jason V. Moore. Capitalocene seems most appropriate to capture the processes leading to the quote, ecocidal implications of European rationalism and capitalism. Namely, primitive accumulation and extractions, industrialization and dependency on fossil fuels, colonial and imperial expansionism, and the legal foundations for an international economic and political order favoring the global north. Stuluxene, suggested by Haraway, points in a different direction. The name is taken from a spider and reminds us that human beings, quote, are not the only important actors in the world, with all other beings able simply to react. For her, the order is now re-netted. Human beings are with and off the earth, and the biotic and abiotic powers of this earth are the main story. Like Bruno Latour, Haraway focuses on Earth or Gaia as a, quote, complex systemic phenomena that compose a living planet, an autopoietic system, self-forming, boundary-maintaining, contingent, dynamic, and stable under some conditions. Whether one appreciates the name Sturluktsen or not, important is the idea of the symbiotic generativity of life, it conveys. The entanglement of all beings, including humans, which have never been individuals in the sense of Western modernity. 
Tarawas Tuluxin, so Enger, refers to a relational world. It is an invitation, quote, to celebrate the porous hybridities, the tangles and knots and dynamic materialities of the world at multiple scales. This perspective deeply challenges the Western ontology and demands a fundamental revision of co the conceptualization of nature-culture relationship and the related values and norms, rights, and obligations. My second section is hybrid ontologies, a view from anthropology. Entanglements, hybridity, and shared agencies in the Anthropocene call into question human mastery of the earth, reflected in clear boundaries between subjectivity activity and objectivity passivity. Instead, they give proof that the human and the non-human part of nature can be both subject and object, collaboratively shaping their future. Scholars are aware that such paradigmatic change in human nature relations is difficult to bring about, and not a few have suggested to look at anthropology, a discipline which was always confronted with difference and tried to engage with concepts, worldviews, and ways of life of the others. The most recent ontological turn in anthropology, in particular, is said to offer a chance to think beyond the human and consequently revive radical alterity. I cannot elaborate on the ontological turn and its critiques here in this context. <coughs> to say that it is an approach which postulates the existence of multiple real worlds and not only different cultural representations of, of or perspectives on the one world <coughs> can be rationally and truly captured only by Western science. To say a word of care, that you, such a view can result in an extreme form of exoticization and essentialization and often fails to see the analytic capacities <clears throat> and the everyday pragmatism of indigenous life. However, if we understand alterity as remarkable difference, not as radical otherness, we see a new world opening up. A world of different epistemologies, forms of knowledge and interpretation. And we should try to learn from this world. <clears throat> Anthropology shows us that indigenous people are on the one hand, critical intellectual agents whose analytic capacities are just as powerful, vexed and complex as our own. This is a quote from Michael Sepek. But on the other hand, their life is embedded in a different cosmological vision. It is based on a different way of seeing, experiencing and living with what we consider external nature. For them, agency is not the sole domain of human beings, but is attributed equally to non-human life and to things. Personhood emerges wherever is life and so does representation, intention and purpose. This is a quote from Viveros de Castro. I want to give you a few very small testimonies voiced by Indian Adivasi and by Australian aborigines. 
indicating a deeply personalized and emotional relation to land and non-human living and non-living beings. Gregory Balder from Orissa says, we dream of our land. Everything that we see, we walk on, we feel through our body belongs to our land. We need the land to think about ourselves, to know who we are. We are no people without our land. And Karyan, a man from Kerala tells us, we have always lived in these forests. Wild animals used to roam freely in search of food. Neither of us was frightened of, frightened of the other. We are all part of one family. And Harvey, a Janu Yuva man from the north, from Northern Australia is convinced, the dreamings are our ancestors. No matter if there are fish, birds, men, women, animals, wind or rain. It was these dreamings that made our law. All things in our country have law. They have ceremony and song, and they have people who are related to them. These indigenous voices convey two important messages. First, human beings are not separated from their natural environment. They do not see nature and culture as radically separated entities. All things in the world are part of an assemblage or network of existence, which includes humans, flora, fauna, geological, form geological formations, water, sky, and so on. Secondly, all components have worthiness by itself or intrinsic value, have agency and are oriented towards interaction and mutual responsibility and benefit. Therefore, both violating or caring for nature affects all parts of the assemblage deeply and equally, as none of its elements exists in isolation. My third section is Rethinking Nature in Western Epistemology. And I start with environmental ethics. Anthropology gives important inspirations, but it is not the only source of a critical view on Western human nature relationships. Another discipline, philosophy, and here the new field of environmental ethics has responded to the growing environmental or ecological awareness and tries to lay the foundation for new perspectives on nature that reflects the interconnectedness of life. Value theories ask how it is possible to overcome the objectivation and instrumentalization of nature and establish a respectful relationship. Discovering non-instrumental value in nature is imperative for changing the human validation of nature. The leading questions of the value theory, what is considered to be valuable and from where does such value come, has been answered in multiple controversial ways depending on the respective ethical tradition. An important divide emerged between philosophical positions evolving around the question of utility, instrumental versus non-instrumental value. Does a natural phenomenon have value primarily because it is useful, a means to an end? Or is it like a human being, an end in itself, has intrinsic value, value as such? Those who see intrinsic value in nature then 
have to pose further questions. Is such intrinsic value assigned by human beings? Or is it already out there and human beings just recognize it? They also ask which organism has intrinsic value. And most answers point to a value hierarchy. Some scholars attest intrinsic value only to sentient beings who can sense pleasure and pain. Others include all organisms that have the ability and interest to flourish or to those have desires. More radical approaches criticize that by making moral distinctions and erecting moral boundaries, value theories reproduce human supremacy and the ethical dualism they want to overcome. Approaches that challenge and try to really overcome this divide are deep ecology and ecofeminism. Deep ecology, as out, outlined by Arne Ness, is ecocentric. Humans are, quote, just one constituency among others in the biotic community, just one particular strand in the web of life, just one kind of knot in the biospherical net. The core concept is self-realization, whereby the self has a holistic meaning and embraces all life forms on the planet. So self-realization means maximizing the manifestations of all life and is nothing that applies only to humans. Ecofeminism criticizes global oppression as interrelated system of dominance over women, nature, animals, indigenous and marginalized people. And some feminist scholars emphasize the equal importance of care. They plead for an ethics of care grounded in the assumption that emotions or feelings and not simply dispassionate reason have moral significance. They see care sensitivity as a core capacity and a fundamental attitude of all human beings towards each other and the so-called outer world to nature, cosmos, non-human living and non-living beings. We have also an approach which I call nature as a legal subject. Another possible way to move away from the image of objectivation and mastery and establish stewardship, responsibility and care towards outer nature is giving subjective rights to natural entities. To establish nature as a rights-bearing entity was first pursued by the state of Ecuador which incorporated the rights of nature of Pachamama, Mother Earth, in their national, into their national constitution in 2008. Pachamama is not wilderness, but refers to landscape with intense human presence. And in Bolivia, the rights of nature are recognized in the law of the rights of Mother Earth. Pruri National Legislative Assembly uh, did it in December 2010. Here, Pachamama is also perceived as, I quote, a dynamic living system comprising an indivisible community of all living systems and living organisms, interrelated, interdependent, and complementary, which share a common destiny. Aotearoa, New Zealand, another country with a considerable indigenous population, created new legal frameworks to give rights to nature, here to land and rivers. Te Urevera, the historic land of the Tuhoe tribe, 
in the North Island, now owned by the state, was designated a national park in 1954. And in 2014, the national government renounced the ownership of the land and recognized it as an identity and legal person in its own right. The government further recognizes Te Urebera as homeland of the Tuoe Iwi and the members of this tribe as Tangata Venua, people of the land, and Kaitiaki, guardians of the land. The land which will, quote, which will own itself in perpetuity is governed by a board of Crown and Tuhoe representatives. And in 2017, the third largest river of New Zealand, the Wanganui, or Te Awa Tupua, in the North Island, was granted the status of legal personhood. After decades of struggle by indigenous groups, Maori groups, against state exploitation and manipulation of the river in the name of development, and for recognition of their own view on the river, Te Awa Tupua became acknowledged as, quote, an indivisible and living whole, from the mountains to the sea, incorporating all its physical and metaphysical elements. And two guardians were appointed by local Maori to represent the river. Maori now start to believe that their worldview gains legitimacy and recognition. Ko au te awa, ko te awa, ko au. I am the river and the river is me. Or we do not own the river, the river owns us. These Maori testimonies indicate connectivity, reciprocal relationship and mutual care between people and nature. The recognition of Maori indigenous identity reflects in another legislation which was issued in the same year. In 2017, Mount Taranaki on the west coast of the North Island, dormant volcano and sacred mountains of the Maori was granted legal personality. And in the Maori worldview, the mountain is considered Wanao or family member. And eight local tribes and the government will take over guardianship for the mountain. While New Zealand pioneered in giving subjective rights to natural entities, other countries followed. In India, the High Court of Uttarakhand in Nainital has declared the Himalayan ecosystem of rivers Ganga and Jamuna as living entity. Quote, the glaciers, including Gangotri and Yamnotri, rivers, streams, rivulets, lakes, air, meadows, dales, jungles, forests, wetlands, grasslands, spring, and waterfalls, having the status of a legal person with all corresponding rights, duties, and liabilities of a living person in order to preserve and conserve them. The right to represent the rivers was given to high government officials of Uttarakhand. But in 2017, the law itself was questioned because of the responsibilities implied. The Indian court, the Supreme Court, set aside its previous judgment with the argument that the order was legally untenable. The legal clause which made state officials the guardians of the river, quote, automatically entitled them to be sued for actions of the body that they were legal guardians of. My next aspect or next section is co-evolution, conceptual and critical considerations. Since the 18th century, European modernity was guided by what sociologist Peter Wagner calls 
a strong concept of progress. Progress was seen as a linear movement towards perfectibility of humankind with an open horizon of possibilities and an unlimited time perspective. Progress did not indicate singular improvements, but as collective singular included a variety of different phenomena. Human progress was grounded in the cosmological binary between nature and culture, and the assumption that humanity is the privileged locus of action and reason. Only humans are rational beings capable of rational problem solving and learning. They have agency, subjectivity and autonomy and freedom. Humans have full mastery over nature and the latter is nothing than object of manipulation, domination and transformation in the service of humanity. Nature is subordinated and has no will and agency of itself. By highlighting co-evolution and the dialectics of progress, cohesive development as concept and practice claims to challenge the post-enlightenment idea of progress and to recognize the interdependence, entanglements, and shared agencies of humans and other manifestations of nature. However, as I postulated in the beginning, the concept of co-evolution is still underexplored. Let us start by trying firstly to clarify co-evolution and then secondly ask whether it is a convincing and useful concept in the process of outlining cohesive development. Co-evolution is a concept which derives from biology but has entered other disciplines like sociology. A pioneer in bringing co-evolution to, to sociology is Richard B. Norger. Broadly, he defined co-evolution as, quote, the sum of evolutionary changes of interrelated entities selecting on the characteristics of each other. Each entity in a co-evolutionary relationship exerts selective pressures on the other, whereby each affects each other's evolution. And Norgert explicitly states, note that with co-evolution, there is no equivalent to the concept of progress. The characteristics of species simply change in response to each other's changes. For Norgard, co-evolution happens between the social and the natural system. And he breaks the social system into four subsystems, values, knowledge, organization, and technology. Co-evolution then is a process, quote, wherein each subsystem interacts with the others in direct ways, while they also co-evolve together through selecting on the characteristics of each other while also interacting and co-evolving with the natural system. The distribution of characteristics in each subsystem also changes by innovations and introductions from other areas. Quote, end. Without going into details, Norgard's concept of co-evolution seems to allow for a profound transformation of human nature relationships. First, the many dimensions of nature and the human world must be seen as assemblage. And this is a word, I used it already, but it was introduced by Deleuze Guattari. 
an assemblage consisting of entities with fluid relationships, powers, dynamics, and connectivities. Second, as each part of the natural or the social system has its own agency and its own mechanisms to evolve in reaction to others, humans don't exert supremacy. Third, in a co-evolving world, change may bring disorder as well as improved welfare. The capacity of humans to predict and control the future is comparatively less. Consequently, Norgard says, the human thinking has the chance to move from material progress to holistic survival and morality, from knowledge hubris to knowledge humility, from individualism to cooperation and care, from private property to global commons. While co-evolution of humans and nature recognizes connectivities, entanglements, multiple agencies, mutual effects and responses, while co-evolution overcomes human supremacy and hubris, the question remains whether human beings can really be conceptualized as just one entity among others, or whether they de facto do have a particular position in the world. Must we admit, as Norbert still seems to do, that humans are the single species that is knowledgeable, equipped with intellect, and capable of conscious, self-conscious morality? Is there any other species which has also exceeded the threshold of self-conscious intellect? Does probably the concept of co-evolution conceal the fact that humans have not necessarily a position of supremacy, supremacy, but a certain singularity and particularity in the world? I do not claim to give a definitive answer to that. However, with the following, I want to initiate discussion. Eco-philosopher Murai Bukchen tells us that humanity's capacity to intervene in the world, the potentiality to, quote, actualize itself in self-conscious intellectuality, is itself a product of natural evolution. First nature has given rise to a second nature, synonymous with society and internal nature, which Bukchen postulates as the bearer of moral responsibilities that do not exist in the realm of first nature. Thus, in their quality of being nature themselves, humans have also transcended nature. And following Marx, anthropologist Lawrence Crader understands the human being as part of nature in two different orders, as a biotic material, as well as a noetic being. As a species being, Homo belongs to the material order of nature. And as such, and like other organisms, is subject to evolutionary processes. In the capacity of a noetic being, it belongs to the human order of nature, is no longer subject to evolution, but undertakes and undergoes development. While human beings are not freed of the biotic processes out of which we come to be, quote, the bearer of human development ceases to be the species and becomes the socio-cultural group. So for Crater, the human order of nature 
is characterized by sociality and culture, and humanity is the nature-bound socio-cultural being in its different historical realizations with different cosmologies, epistemologies, as well as imaginations and aspirations for the future, that is, aspirations for development. And my concluding question is, what does this mean for the concept and political project of cohesive development? Cohesive development, as I understand it, is a humble concept, disclaiming human dominion over nature as well as over co-fellows. It sees all human beings, on the one hand, as cultural beings and part of a shared humanity, equipped with self-conscious intellect and morality and capable to deliberatively shape the world in form of their immediate social and natural environment, but increasingly on a global dimension. On the other, other hand, belonging to the natural order, humans are part of an assemblage of agentive beings and manifestations of life, deeply relational, interwoven and interdependent. While embedded in such a network of mutual responsibilities and care, human beings must accept that they have holistic and in contemporary times, global responsibilities. Given these conceptual premises, for me, the political project of cohesive development has three main dimensions. First, cohesive development is not about homogeneity, but about recognition of difference and difference in form of different life worlds, aspirations and projects for a preferred future. And difference means plurality, heterogeneity and multivocality. Second, while I have in that book uh, on theorizing development, also so far focused on the social world, social world and asked for a culture of listening, respect and audibility for all different sections of society, I see it now paramount to include the world of first nature in these demands. That means cohesive development then is a truly inclusive transformative project, which requests those who work for it to listen to multiple heterogeneous often contradictory voices, not only in the social, but also in the natural realm. It is important to recognize connections and dependencies between humans and nature, to react and interact, to adapt or withdraw, always having in mind the mutual benefit in the common future. Cohesive development, in my opinion, is less about co-evolution. Based on mutual recognition and respect, it is about symmetric cooperation and about co-evolvement of both worlds in which human beings are embedded. Thank you. So please unmute yourself. Okay. Are you able to hear me now? Yes, sir. please go ahead. Okay. That's very good. Uh, thank you, Professor Linkenberg. Uh, 
I must say that uh, I don't know how do I explain or express my <laughs> gratitude to you is a very extraordinarily stimulating from different points of view. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of interdisciplinary, as you said right in the beginning, and as you understand, is absolutely an interdisciplinary approach. And this, the way uh, you have whipped, whipped in the components from different disciplines is something gives you what is called a total understanding, uh, deeply, a deeper understanding uh, whether you talk about co-evolution from the biological side of my point of view, or you talk about the mutual benefit from each other and therefore the collective action that you talk about, or you talk about audibility, or you talk about what is called differences among the people, you recognize, and that's the one thing which very nicely you at the end clearly explained, that is not necessarily homogenization. You do recognize the differences culturally, uh, you know, uh, socially, you have the differences. But then question is that when you talk about the co-evolution of human and nature, and there comes what's called how to bring all these people together with exercise the fact there are differences, but that is the collective action. The question is much more broader and much more serious. It's a crisis of civilization in this book, you know, I wrote in the previous also, the crisis of civilization, whether one agrees or not, whether the American president agrees or not, and different what is called, if I just put it a bit of what is called what has been happening for several decades. You know, this uh, uh, summit, environmental summit that takes place at the international level. I've been, I wrote number two, three papers also on that one also. And you find the how, the, I'm just going further. How, the, how in practice the political power, the superpowers, the powers that have history interest in the system, the power that really increases the inequality among the people, the power that wants to really absorb everything at their own end. It is this power how are disturbing or destroying this homogeneity of idea not homogeneity in terms of people's culture and so and so forth, homogeneity of idea. When you talk about in a Paris community, Paris conference came only just a few months ago, but earlier to the Copenhagen and then before that also. And I do remember one thing, even, you know, this Kuwaito protocol that you had, people coming together and recognizing the fact that we are having not climate change alone, but we are having a serious problem to the, to the whole environment of the universe. Difficult for us to sustain. And the years to come, we will find that we do not know where we are going to go. I do remember the when I was in the World Bank team, we are estimating the fossil fuel. How long this store of this, because this is the this is the kind of a resource which is not renewable, non-renewable resource. Now the stock that you have, the idea stock, estimated stock all over the world, spread all over the world. Now put them together, region-wise. And then you see what exactly is coming about. 
and they will be coming together as to if the rate of exploitation is like this and if the people utilizes you know a certain rate now if the vehicles increases if the factories increases so and so forth so we have got a rate now how long it will take to get exhausted to exhaust the entire resource base because this is not renewable and therefore what is the alternative that you can think about there was a kind of a task that was given to our group now we did work very hard on that day in day out and then i found that by 2050 we are nearing completion stocks are going to be completed completely exhausted 2050 it means that at this seven or two present 2011 or 12 i think 8 or 9 and then this many years after is got except is by that time the whole universe whole uh, the, the planet earth need to really look for some alternative use of the resources now look here again there is a big politics i do not want to spell out in a bit of detail but we found the utilization pattern of various countries and it is again the six or seven countries of the world have been what is called mainly responsible for what is called co2 emission and again in the per capita consumption of these resources that you see it is a few countries like america whose thousand thousand times millions thousand times greater than the average indian or average ugandan or average sri lankan now question is that resources you have few countries resources deposit not getting exhausted whereas some countries are getting exhausted continuously is particularly the middle east but some countries keeping their reserves intact that is something which we really questioned and then again the question is that is it possible to have an alternative next look at the alternative then there are many reports that have come in the, in the alternative now solar system that in the some of the companies are in taking interest in the solar system and all that and there are other system they are looking forward the jetropa cultivation that is kind of substitute then is becoming turned out to be highly uneconomic there is something i do not want to get into all the details and then again there are stories there are scientific experiment that scientists they talk about they said that even if you produce certain thing want to put you want to go going to use the petrol the non-renewable resource fossil fuel so it is the kind of what is called the jevons paradox as you know the jevons paradox you want to stop it but to stop it to use the resource that was a paradoxical situation they left into but at the same time look at the whole argument nobody is talking about this coevolution nobody is talking about nobody is that that level talking about well how the society has to be designed how the alternative or you know or the new uh you know new system of production or new system of consumption or new different alternative system that you need to think about for for the sake of the civilization back taking the civilization back too difficult for us to understand about this kind of thing because even if you get bank about what is called the solar system and other kind of system which we talk about alternative fine but there are many many studies that show that again to use those kinds of things 
you have certain amount of dependence, great amount of dependence on the fossil fuel. In other words, this paradox is going to be there to harm or what is going. In other words, what I'm trying to say and what she has been arguing, I'm linking it to the what she has been arguing. It is precisely where you need to recognize which you can't avoid. You did avoid 200 years ago when the industrial revolution took place, cunningly. And the father of economics is Adam Smith. I squarely blame the system of thought that time these people had had conspired against the civilization. I do see the reason for that. Okay, we realized it, we have to check it. How do you go about it? You are not going to do that. We are not prepared to do that. And there she argues, the co-evolution is something which is scientific. It is something like, you know, which, you, which is indispensable, which you cannot really compromise with. It's bound to be there to accept in order to save our planet, in order to save us, in order to save our, the next generation, in order to see that our civilization progresses. Now it is completely what is called neglected now. Now, there are various different points which she talks about and so analytically, so the first nature and the second nature is something which you have all heard. These are extraordinarily important to really keep in mind and think about what the development pattern that you can think about. It's really stimulating in different ways. I cannot express everything, but somehow I feel that there are uh, well, what uh, some I feel that if the, if Impli can, at some stage can, you know, and if she agrees, can publish her work of this kind, it will be greatly helpful for people to make to have a deeper understanding about this, you know, the other topic on which she has been deliberated. She has been deliberated upon. Now, given this one, I would like to open this forum for discussion. Maybe that there could be some good points in discussion points and all that. And I will request Professor Linkenberg to respond to their queries or questions. Now, may I shall, may I, may I open this forum for discussion for debate for questions and queries? Thank you so much. If anybody is there to, uh, yeah, Dr. Arjun. So one question, uh, and thank you so much, uh, Dr. Anjiman, for <clears throat> such a wonderful lecture. Uh, we really enjoyed it. it it's been uh, some time that so much of uh, excellent points you have put. Ma'am, you have uh, also given the example from Global South, Australia, and others also, that how uh, on-ground people are uh, reacting to it. Uh, one of my uh, question and the concern which was coming, that how do you see various countries receiving it? There are also multilateral bodies, uh, diverse set of players here. Uh, how do you see that going forward? We have many stories, theories, and different, even as Professor Ria was suggesting that IPCC panel and so many of things also going. And we have uh, a lot of literature also from science uh, now integrating with social science. How do you see this, uh, the cohesive development in coordination? Is it leading to anything? And one question, Mahima, do you have to ask anything? Uh, yes, sir. So I had a question regarding, uh, especially with climate change uh, at the center stage in international debates and discussions, uh, 
who should be bearing the cost of climate change should it what is the perspective of developed countries and the so called underdeveloped or developing countries regarding uh, responses to climate change thank you ma'am over to you yes okay thank you i'll just start with a last question um you have pointed to an important problem the uh, countries of the global south they have to bear the costs and um, we know that a lot of um, for example pacific islands like manuatu they are already partly underwater yeah. and they have to struggle but it is not i i can't i'm not a politician and i i only can plead that people um try to get aware what their capitalist um econo economics and capital way, capitalist way of life is doing to others and of course in the end th those who um like like the northern countries should have to bear the costs but the life of these people is destroyed and nobody can now stop the flooding of for example vanuatu so it 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 remains a deep inequality and we and the west western world the european world has destroyed so many countries since uh, colonial times absolutely yeah and uh, uh, talking about responsibility talking about um um uh, rehabilitation or whatever it it remains somehow without any effect that's i think it's a deep deep dilemma and predicament what we only can do is try to raise awareness of these things and yeah sorry it uh, it it is a problem you you mentioned a real real uh, problem yeah and we western West, western western world has to admit that it has destroyed and is still destroying life worlds countries and lives um the other question was about um uh the politics of uh, coordination between multi stakeholders yes of of different states or what yeah i in my talk this time and this i have to to um state very clearly i did not go into politics yeah because everybody is talking about these uh, paris conferences rio conferences and we have heaps and lots and hundreds and thousands of uh, of statements and of um, arrangements and and uh, mous or whatever um but what i realized and this is a way forward that since uh, maybe 10 years and since this idea of anthropocene and uh, of the problem of climate change and the um the protests against climate against climate change the fridays for future and so has has got speed 
people are, have started to talk and to get aware about what they are doing to the world, to the nature, to the earth. And suddenly you get, just check, you get re books in amounts of books in, in, uh, on climate change, on the nature-human relationship, things you haven't got before. So there is something coming up. And I don't think it immediately translates into politics. Okay, you have this giving rights to nature. That's one thing. But giving rights means also to have responsibilities. And I also always would say, look at the responsibilities we have. And of course, it's a, it's a way forward. And also it's a way forward to acknowledge other ways of seeing and experiencing nature what I call the indigenous ways. Of course, we are no longer indigenous people. And that is why I really stress uh, the point that humanity is responsible, humanity has a moral responsibility. We are not just nature as the others. That's my personal uh, opinion. We are not just um, uh, entity in this assemblage. We have a special responsibility. We are moral intellect, self-conscious intellectual moral beings. And we have to think for others as well. It's not being um, masters of nature. It's humbly being part of nature, taking responsibility for each other. Like taking uh, responsibility in the social world. That sounds may sound utopian, may sound a little bit out of, of reality, but I think we have to start from there and slowly and slowly, slowly work and try to be influencers, not influencers on Facebook, yeah, but influencers everywhere. And I hope if we have, we will have a conference on degrowth in, in four or five weeks hopefully all these small efforts will add up at the end. Yeah, very interesting. <clears throat> yeah, any more? Yes, sir, Dr. Arjun. One, one last question. As uh, Professor Ray also pointed out that, uh, Sakshi, I will come back. Yes, that it, it is becoming as one of the most prominent civilizational questions. How do you uh, and Jim, uh, respond to that? And uh, how we will uh, move towards the way forward if it is the civilizational question for all of the humanity or how do we see in our Anthropocene that different set of people taking, but when you're talking about indigenous people, there is also diversity among that. So people also want to do things their own way. How do you see that behavior thing uh, coming into uh, uh, this solidarity approach? Um, I remember that it was, I think, Dipesh Chakrabarti who said, okay, the, um, the, the, this um, uh, human foot footprint is especially great in the Northern world. But now, the moment things have developed like they are, it becomes a civilizational problem. It becomes a problem everybody has to join to solve. So 
and it comes back to the responsibility. It's a bit unfair. Those who have, yeah, who, who are the, uh, those who did the harm are in the boat with others who have, um, who, who were the, so to say, the victims. But we all have to join and we all have to work together. And I'm also not um, um, idealizing indigenous people. I'm very much aware that we have different ways of different um, uh, ideas and um, visions and aspirations for the future. And I also know that no indigenous person will remain in, in the state they have, they have been. They're all a part of the modern world now. Forcefully, but they also have to, but, but they also now have chosen to be part of that world. But the interesting thing is to give them the chance to, to select how much of this modern world they want to have. And not forcefully bring them development. Therefore, development has to come, or the preferred future has to come from the people themselves. It has to be from the bottom up and not the other way around. And therefore, heterogeneity, multivocality, we have to listen. We have to listen to all social groups and we have to listen to nature because we, are the we have responsibility for both. Right, right. Over to Sunil, sir. So, would you like to add anything? Anybody else? Uh, Sakshi has posed a question, but that's a very technical question, so we can leave that. Yeah, let Sakshi speak, Sivarong. Sakshi, do you want to speak? Good afternoon. Thank you, ma'am, for the engaging uh, conversation. It was, uh, I was dwelling in uh, specifically referring to the IUCN where they've recently published their uh, Global Commons in the Anthropocene World Development on a Stable and Resilient Planet report. And in that report, they were talking about four mega trends, the, which was food, energy, agriculture, and urbanization as the mega trends that would define how uh, the Anthropocene would develop into a sustainable and uh, livable planet. So in the fourth mega trend, they speak about something called, called the circular economy. And the circular economy, one major section uh, was the uh, one major section of the fourth uh, uh, point. Uh, the fourth mega trend was the recycling, which was basically talking about production that can come from recycling, reusing. And but please, please but, slowly. Please, please, please slow. Sorry. Not able to hear <laughs> It's not about the, the speed, it's about it, 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 it's like a patchwork, it comes and goes. Uh, is it better, ma'am? The voice yeah. is it better now? Yeah. Sorry. So the, um, the fourth mega trend that they were talking about was urbanization. And in urbanization, they spoke about the need for a circular economy other than livable environment, uh, the environment conditions. The circular economy was reliant on the first recycling and then the recycling production. 
So having an entire production sector through recycling of products. And you have a major shift to such thrift production that has happened in the global north now. But the global south, the, these thrift products are extremely expensive for consumer markets. So my question was that how do we successfully establish markets in terms of production changes chains and making these products uh, affordable for a consumer market in Indian urban sectors or global South urban sectors for that matter. <clears throat> to that question, actually, I can't give you an answer. Uh, I think it's a very valid question, but it's for me, it's too technical because I'm not working in this, um, in this area. Um, but you are right, the whole recycling uh, economy is something which, which um, has come up here in, in Europe in a very broad way. And um, it might be too expensive for, but I don't know actually about this. Yes. Yeah. But, but uh, keep it in mind, it's a very, very valid question. Yeah. One of the SDGs also is uh, responsible consumption and production, uh, as you know, envisaged in our sustainable development goals. So, Professor, over to you if you want to add anything or ask anything to ma'am. Sunil, sir. Yeah. So, do you want me to do a concluding remarks? Or if you want to ask anything to ma'am? No, <laughs> I have nothing to ask her. But only thing that uh, success point, you know, I just pick up a success point and perhaps I, what, I, what I could hear or understand her properly. Now, there is a kind of debate. I don't know whether so I was trying to refer to that debate. Is that if there is an episode called climate change, now this climate change has been affecting everywhere, whether it's a North America, is America or India or Sri Lanka. Now, impact of it primarily is seen at the moment, as Professor Linkage is rightly said, that much more severe in the South than as compared to North. But at the end, everybody, everyone in the planet Earth will have to suffer. Whether you are located there in the North America or India or Sri Lanka or Bangladesh, everybody will be happy. It's natural, something which cannot be undone. Now, now you have a disproportionate impact of what is called climate change. Okay. Now suppose the debate is if you want to have, that is what exactly in 2012, Kyoto Protocol, this issue came up. It was resolved also to a great extent. And what is that? Now, if you have low industrial base, so your emission of CO2 will be less. You have a large industrial base, your CO2 emission will be large. That is what has been there. And that's the reason why it is always said that Historically responsible, these developed countries are to the extent that 90% of the total pollution or CO2 emission is being done by this country historically. And therefore, it was decided that the developed countries will have to compensate the laws being incurred by the developing countries of the South. And therefore, you know, kind of a balance to be brought about. And Kuwaito Protocol was also an attempt to really nullify this point to say that, well, fine, if this is the case that you are entitled to pollute this much, you are entitled to emit this much, you are entitled to emit this much. So the kind of distributional pattern was there to talk about to bring about a balance. Now, the argument of the developing countries was at that point of time, which is even now also, 
if you apply your criteria onto us, you cannot, because you cannot progress then. We cannot have development. We can't have industries. Okay. So you stop here at some point. Now, for example, if I do quote the estimation being done by the World Bank, they said that developed countries have the zero growth rate, then emission will be much lower. If the growth rate is zero, in some cases, negative growth rate, they talk about. You understand between the zero and negative. Now, if the negative growth rate is there, then the development will be there, then there will be protection. Now, who is going to go for it? Now, for example, the developing, now, now in the process, Soviet, say, for example, Russia, Russia, India, these two countries really now, the CO2 emission is maximum now as compared to many other. Okay, that has been there. Now, argument is there, why should we not develop our industries? Just because the fact that historically you are responsible for the CO2 emission and the pollution of this kind of climate change, do you think that we have to suffer even by what stopping our industries to come up? That is the argument. Now, the point is that here, you need to really work out something of a kind. This Paris coming, this no, this latest job, uh, the one which said, they never came out with any solution of that kind. They only said the argument was that not beyond below two, not beyond two, uh, you know, the temperature should be there and something which is pre-industrial as compared to the pre-industrial level. That's fine, given that one. But then how to go about it? The only attempt that was made on the Quetta Protocol, that is in 2012, where the distribution of this was called pain and pleasure was there very much at that one attempt was made. But after that, nothing of that kind was there. And that has been going on, that's being spoiled, that's being destroyed. And it's being destroyed with again, if I bring the political dimension here, they the superpowers in the world, they did it. Now, at the end, what he said that Lincoln, Professor Lincoln Barr, we, everybody has to suffer. Now, suppose you produce a good, and if there's a demand for the good, what is the function? What is the need for you to produce the good? You, can you produce anymore? If there's no demand, it is something that is what exactly happened. If the people are not there, what is that What, what is that you're going to do? You can't do anything anymore. And therefore you need to stop somewhere. It's difficult for you to sustain a situation of this kind, which really goes against the progress. It goes against the human civilization, something that needs to be taken care of. That is precisely where Professor Lincolnberg talks about. It is very interestingly, she said that, you don't think that you are only social entity from the point of view of individual interest. You have a commitment to the society. It means the reframing of society, reframing your individual, your definition. You need to define your own way. And once you do that one, you have a different paradigm altogether. Never an epistemological, epistemology before you really think about it, you know. That is something which is very important for us to recognize. And this look at the point. It means that you need to redesign your institution. Here comes the institution. And Professor Lincolnberg may be agreeing with me on that one. Social redesigning the social institution. The institution that is social institution, economic institution, political institution, whatever form in whatever way it is there, it defines individual and social entity in a different, in a way which is not acceptable. If you accept Professor Lincoln's formula or understanding of how one should define the social entity, people like us, then you need to have, you need to go for, you need to redesign, redesign your social institution, economic institution, political institutions. 
because you are not only living for yourselves, you are living for others as well. It means the mutual reciprocity. It means the mutual connectivity. It means the collective action. That is precisely what she is trying to hint that. And therefore, if you go for that kind of thing, it means that you are really prescribing new principles of organizing the economy and society. So the kind of principles of organizing the society and economy that you have at the moment is something which is individual centric. It doesn't allow the individual to do, it doesn't allow many such people go voluntarily, that's a different thing. But if you really see a systematically understanding of what this exactly is all about and what is that we are being taught? What is that we are teaching our children? What is that our forefathers taught us? How to be selfish, how to go about it and all that. How many of us being taught that you are not only a person individual, but also you have also for the society? How many of our parents have taught this kind of How the parents also not being taught that way? That means the social institutions of this kind, and that has produced an economic institution. And this economic institution, that is what Polanyi talk about. This is exactly the Polanyi great transformation really fits in. If society accepted the economic institution, now the society, what its contribution is there. Economy is overtaken the society because it's got the feedback and therefore you can see the individual liberty and all that is after the, what is called uh, during the industrial revolution, it superseded, it overtaken. It's not the society defines the economy. It is the defined economy so which is defining the society. But this economy is being taught again by this, the kind of what's the individual, they redefine. They define the society, not the society was like that. That is the anthropological approach, where the society was believing in reciprocity, mutual respect for each other. You know, that is a kind of society that is was there. The moment then, once you have the industrial revolution, once you have the grid as the principles of development, grid economics developed completely at the banner and the nap with being nurtured by Adam Smith and the rest of the people during the industrial revolution. Then you define the individual in a different way. No, 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 no. Individual is not like that. Individual is selfish. Therefore, supply creates his own demand. You go for goods, produce, which are commodity, market, commodity, market, make profit, that kind of logic. And individual is put into that logic. So individual is taken away from polarized society, was taken away, snatched from the polarized society of reciprocity, put it in the individual oriented, centric individual, individual centric approach and then put him in the industrial development and all that and that become the that become the logic that become the reasons for development here we need to change it that is what professor Lickenbach talks about we cannot have this kind of similar type of we need to frame it up we need to reframe it and say that no individual is not like that individual has to be different individual not only for selfish interest but also for the society as well. And there comes the question of solidarity. There comes the question of what is called mutual reciprocity. There comes the collective action. This is precisely what the message Professor Lincolnberg is giving to us. That is something which really, I find that if you really want to, if, you, if we all want to create a world, the world for everybody, the world where everybody can live with dignity. We need to reframe, we need to redefine what individual is all about, number one. If we do it, then of course we will have a 
different social institutions. The institutions which Polanyi spoke about. Then we have an economic institution following. We have a political institution of that kind. It's not a dream. It's logically, logically sound to think about. And therefore, this gives you a sense of how to organize, how to really have a new principles, organizing principles, new principles to organize the society and the economy. So it stems from there, defend the individual institutions and principles of new principles of change. I think that is what the interlinkage is all about. If anybody, any other question, any question is there from anybody's side, I'll be very happy to entertain and Professor Lincoln will be able to respond. If nothing is there, may if anybody is there, Dr. Ujjun. <clears throat> Sir, I was asking if uh, Dr. Lincoln Batch also wants to uh, give her final words, or if you want to say anything. Yeah, thank you. Um, I agree with uh, Professor Ray, but only partly because <laughs> he again focused very much on the social world. And actually, I wanted to raise awareness, and that was my talk, that we don't, uh, we should not only think about changing society. Of course, everything what you said is very valid. We have to, uh, to be responsible in the social world for each other, but we are part of a greater entity. We are part of nature as well. And if we only think about how to change the social world and not thinking about how we can relate in a different way to nature and to our environment and that what is feeding and sustaining us, we won't come further. We won't, uh, we will not be able to have a changed or a cohesive society. Cohesiveness is also necessary in, with, uh, in the, in, with relation to nature and we have to listen to nature's voice as well. That's just my message in this talk. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Dr. Arjun, I just may I conclude it one. Yes, yeah, please. now this is this Professor Lincoln, but no, actually what my, I was trying to tell you that in the context of what you talked about the changing the relationship between human beings and nature. That is what exactly, the, what kind of relationship that you have. It is in this context and the whole argument, as you know, is based, is around that one only. The relationship, the new relationship with the nature. That is what exactly is about. That is what the message is all about and all that. And to have this kind of relationship really in practice, what is that you should do? In practice, and it gives you it gives you gives a line of what's action to be taken by the individual, redefine and you know, But basically, ultimate objective is to redefine relationship between human and nature. Is something that is very important for us to really nice. And you have underlined it very carefully and nicely and very convincingly. That is something which is very important for us, not only from your point, from on a specific uh, what is called discipline quite a few of us, but is the interdisciplinary kind of thing that you talked about more, but you know, something which one should really, uh, methodologically is one finds is very strong and very important for us to really learn from you. 
So I must thank you so much, uh, Professor Lincoln. But they could really have some time, you know, to share your thought over here, although you're too busy with your own works and all that. But then still, Dr. Ujum could really uh, uh, make it possible to have you to in this forum to speak on something which is very relevant for every one of us. Uh, you know, uh, thank you so much, and thank you all who have participated in this discussion. Thank you so much. Thank Dr. you, Ujum. Yes, as you suggested, we'll be very happy to bring it in a publication form. If ma'am have any manuscript, Sunil sir can also help in editing. If you can share, we'll be happy to publish it on our publications. So thank you very much. So let me just formally propose the vote of thanks for this very interesting lecture and deliberation today on behalf of IMPRI Center for Human Dignity and Development uh, at IMPRI and Center for Development Communication and Study, CDEX Jaipur. I thank all of you for joining uh, today in our special series, The State of Development Discourses, Hashtag Cohesive Development with Professor Sunil Ray. And today's deliberation, uh, a very interesting lecture today on cohesive development in the Anthropocene uh, by Dr. Angel Lickenbach. Thank you so much, ma'am, for putting uh, such an interesting uh, lecture today. Uh, not using slide was, I would say, a very good idea because it made us to stick to and listen to it. Thank you so much for joining and putting this all together. And I'm also thankful to Professor Sunil Ray for chairing and moderating this discussion. Thank you, sir, as always. And uh, we look forward uh, to all of you for joining in our future episodes of Hashtag Cohesive Development. Those who have joined here on Facebook and later watch on our uh, YouTube and our other podcasts. Thank you so much and please take care of yourself. Thank you, Thank you so much, Anjana. Uh, we will surely meet when you will come to New Delhi, whenever possible. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> no, she, uh, she's going to organize, uh, you know, an international seminar on degrowth. growth oh. uh, scholars from all over the world. Uh, is it coming, I guess yeah. is yeah, it with, very shortly. Is it with ICAS MP, ma'am? Yeah. Is it with ICAS MP Center? It is with ICAS MP, yeah. And um, Professor Ray is also co-organizer. So we are three. And uh, we wanted to have it in person in uh, October, but it's not possible because people have to come from Africa, from Brazil. And so So we will have it, uh, we will split it. We have it online first, uh, uh, present draft papers, and then hopefully can meet in spring. Great, great. I look forward to it. So we also know Laila very well. Keep visiting the office. You, 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 you were planning to meet personally. That's in the month of September, uh, February, you know? Personal meeting. Personal meeting yeah. February. Yeah, yeah. February or March or somewhere, if it is possible. We have to we have to figure that out, you know? Figure that out. Probably where? Where, where are we going to do it? Hmm? Is it being decided yet? No, okay. not yet. The, the date is not yet decided. Huh. Yeah. But October, October, it will be there for, for us. October is, is fixed. It's 4th to 6th, no? Hmm. Huh. That is fixed. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I will, it's, I will yeah. send out the program very soon. Sure. There are holiday season now, and uh, in, in Europe, is August is basically holiday season. And you can get nobody. <laughs> mm. <laughs> no, that's really good. In fact, yeah. this something is similar of this on this topic is perhaps is going to take place in India for the first time. You know, there uh, are other, I just got information that they're also in in uh, Netherlands. They have a conference on degrowth, but I have no idea about that. 
No, it's, uh, it's, it's something which is going to really trigger up the huge debate and discussion. That is what I could guess. Thank you. So, so much looking forward to it. Have a nice day. Thank you very and much. And Dr. Urjun may be interested also to join later on. Bye. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay.